So in addition to honoring the teachers uh, today, which we'll do after today's service, uh, we'll have a little party reception for them, for all of you teachers. Um, we're also here continuing our sermon series about the Apostle Paul. It's part two of four uh, parts in this series about Paul. I stand by my statement from last week that the Apostle Paul is incredibly underrated by all the uh, top 25 most powerful people that have ever lived lists like Time Magazine. No matter what Time Magazine says, I insist that Paul not only breaks the top 25, I think Paul is the number two most influential person behind Jesus as far as uh, what has shaped the world we know today. I cannot believe Time Magazine would rate the Apostle Paul behind, like, uh, Teddy Roosevelt or something. Like, I just can't. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt's cool. I like him. Robin Williams in the movie was great. But, like, this is the Apostle Paul. And so much of what we know about reality today, so much of what we know about our systems of governance comes from the spread of the gospel away from just Judea where the first Christians and Jesus' first disciples wanted to keep it because it was nothing more than a sect or a denomination within Judaism. Uh, it's Paul that leads that charge to spread the gospel elsewhere. And wherever the gospel has gone, these tremendous social upheavals have gone as well. So wherever the gospel has gone, uh, insistence on freedom has gone with it. Wherever the gospel has gone, insistence on representative government and democracy and things like that have gone with it. Wherever the gospel has gone, things like health care, hospitals, clinics, immunizations have gone with it. Education, especially education for young girls in places where girls were not seen as worthy of education. Where the gospel goes, even now where the gospel is going, education goes with it, and so many of, of the things we take for granted, clean water, um, for example, it follows the gospel, wherever the gospel has gone. So it was Paul who led that charge. It was Paul uh, who led the, the charge to spread the gospel. Not the other. It was Peter, James, and John, and Mary, all the first inner circle of Jesus, they wanted to keep Jesus within Judaism because that's all they knew. Paul stood up and said, no, I think Jesus is calling me to do something different. It's Paul who travels 10,000 miles by foot, as you can see on the maps I gave you. 10,000 miles on foot, sometimes by boat, to spread the gospel. It's Paul who writes 13 of the 27 New Testament books, including some passages that you don't even know Paul wrote. They're just part of your fiber. It's part of who you are. Passages like these, love is patient, love is kind. That's Paul. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds. I think we have another slide of these. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's Paul. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You wouldn't have that band, jars of clay, without the Apostle Paul. He's influential. There's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. Do we have any more? Or is that all? Oh, the fruit of the Spirit. That's Paul. You've been, by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
That idea didn't exist before Paul articulates it. There's one body, one spirit. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives for better or worse. Paul gave us that, right, women? Like, we'll talk about that in two weeks. I promise we'll make sense of it. <laughs> Put on the whole armor of God. All of these ideas come from Paul. Uh, holy moly, there's more. All right, we're going to move on. But so many passages that we know Especially if you grew up in church, you got them at vacation Bible school. So many ideas, so many theological notions come from Paul. And uh, we, we don't usually give uh, Paul the credit that he deserves. But it's Paul who endures six and a half years in prison after his conversion. And these weren't like white-collar prisons of today. This was, these were dungeon prisons. A hole in the ground with maybe 30 minutes of natural daylight. Six and a half years. It's Paul that endured one arrest after another, one beating after another. Eventually, he was beheaded for his faith in Christ. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, could have at any point in those six and a half years of imprisonment or whatever, he could have said, you know what, guys, about that whole Jesus thing, you know, I got carried away. Like, I'm sorry. You know, my fault. My bad. Like, can we just, I'll, I'm good. And they would have let him go. But something happened in Paul's mentality. Something changed in his heart, in his mind, to not only redirect his priorities, like we talked about last week. Something happened to keep him redirected. Something real and true happened to Paul to keep him on this crazy path that no one can make sense of. No historian, whether Christian or, or atheist or whatever, can make sense of what happened to the Apostle Paul. Because remember, last week we talked about Paul in his 20s. Like many of you in your 20s or when you were in your 20s, <laughs> Paul was on the fast track. Paul was upwardly mobile from a big city. He was a citizen of Rome, the biggest, greatest empire in the world. He, he came from a little bit of money. His parents had some money. He had a great education. He had a, up, you know, a, a rising career. He was doing great. By every account, by every measure, Paul's life was on the right track. And then something happens that no one can explain. And Paul changes his entire trajectory from living for himself to living for Jesus. And no one really can explain it. No one really knows why. Today's passage, today's uh, scripture focus is going to be from Paul's most important letter. And it's what I think is Paul's most important line in his most important letter. Take your Bibles if you have them. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is where we'll read today. It's also found in your study guides. Hope you can use those. Hope those are helpful. Or uh, on the screens, we will uh, look at this passage today. I'm going to, while you do that, I'm going to enjoy an iced toddy from our coffee bar. So good. All right, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Um, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed 
or righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I've always found it curious why Paul would say in such a crucial part of his most crucial letter, for I am not ashamed. Why does someone usually say, I'm not ashamed? It's usually because you've done something everybody else knows you should be ashamed of. (laughs) Anytime a friend of yours says they're not ashamed, they probably said it after saying something they should be ashamed of. Like if I were to come to you and say, and this is totally hypothetical, if I were to come to you, totally hypothetical, and say, I had Torchy's tacos four times this week, I'm not ashamed. Most of you would be thinking, yeah, good job, right? Thank you. Uh, I knew I loved this church. Um, you know, well, you know, maybe you should be ashamed of having Torchy's tacos for, you know, four times in a week. Not that that ever has really happened in real life, except this week. And... <laughs> Most weeks. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I saw this on someone's uh, social media feed this week, and she is here today, and I'm not going to point her out or single her out in this way, um, but she knows who she is. And uh, there was a celebrity in town, Khloe Kardashian, came and ate Chipotle. Who eats Chipotle in Houston, by the way? Anyway, sorry. Go to Torchies. And she goes there with... She goes there with James Harden, her new boyfriend, which I'm really worried about, by the way, uh, as, a, as a Rockets fan. And uh, this person, who shall remain nameless, who's here this morning, she said on her social media page, she said, OMG, Chloe's in town. I love keeping up with the Kardashians. OMG. And then in the comments, <laughs> she didn't use that vocal inflection. It was on the page, but I added that. Um, <laughs> That's just how I imagine her saying it. Um, and then uh, she said in the comments, you know, don't hate, I'm not ashamed. And anytime somebody says, I'm not ashamed, again, you should, you should be. Like, you should be, <laughs> should totally be ashamed of loving, keeping up with the Kardashians. That's just, that's how, that's, whenever you say, say you're not ashamed of it, you know, da 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 da, and I'm not ashamed of it, then you, you know, the assumption is that whatever you've just said is something most people, the average person around you, would find shameful. Most people around you would say, well, you may not be ashamed, but you should be. And so the question when Paul goes out of his way to say, for I am not ashamed, it just hangs there for me as I read it as a student of the Bible. I'm like, why does Paul even say that? I mean, the, the church is a good thing, Jesus is a good thing to follow. You know, like this is, this is all good. And, and yet Paul is saying, for I am not ashamed. What does Paul have to be ashamed of when it comes to the gospel? And the truth is that if we put ourselves in Paul's place for just a minute, if you can just imagine with me what Paul and his life must have been like, then the answer is you know, plenty. Like Paul had plenty to be ashamed of. Of. Keep in mind that all of Paul's family and friends, everyone Paul grew up with, everyone who knew Paul, believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christians and Christianity were beginning to distort the Jewish faith. So Christianity had been identified as a troublesome heresy by the Jewish religious leaders. Paul himself believed that. Remember what we talked about last week when Paul's overseeing the stoning of Christians? This is because Paul one day believed 
that the Christians were distorting the, the Jewish faith. And so now Paul is one of those Christians. Suddenly, Paul, who believed what everyone else believed, has become a member of that weird religion, the weird new religion. You know, it's gotta, it must have made for some really awkward like Thanksgivings in Tarsus, like at Paul's parents' house. Like, so he, Paul's one of those now. You know, like, it would be like if one of your friends came to you and said, yeah, just, I, I joined the Church of Scientology and I gave him all my money and I quit my job and, you know, and I'm not ashamed. What would you be thinking? He should be. You know, like, and like you can, like save your emails. I'm not saying that Christianity is anything like Scientology. I'm saying in the minds of the people, it was this crazy wild new religion then and suddenly Paul is saying, I'm a part of it, I'm leading it, I'm spreading it and I'm not ashamed. And everyone else in his sphere, everyone else who knew him was thinking, well, you should be. Because everyone who knew Paul from his childhood onward, everyone now looks at Paul and goes, what a shame what he's become. What a shame. He had so much potential. Paul's life is not turning out like everyone else thinks it should or thought it would. Remember, he was the golden child. Remember, he was accepted among the Pharisees because he was like an Eagle Scout, an honor roll student. student. He was voted most likely to succeed in high school by his peers. I made that up. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing he fit that bill. That's who he was, extremely talented, lots of potential. And now he's 30, and he's moved back home with his parents, and he's living at home with mom and dad. He's quit his job. He's going nowhere. He's not married. He has no children. No one will even go out with him because he won't stop talking about this dead, discredited criminal that died on a cross 10-plus years ago. And it's really sad. It's really pathetic. Poor Paul. What a shame. When Paul says, I am not ashamed, it's in response to something. Part of it was personal. Part of it was what was going on culturally. It's hard for us to see this now. We talk a lot about Christian or hear a lot about Christian persecution in America today. Uh, I want to tell you that uh, relative to the early church, I'd say we have it pretty good compared to what it used to be like for Christians like Paul. Um, there's lots of documentation of the kinds of rumors that were being spread about Christians and Christianity in the first century. These are not just Christian sources. These are Roman sources, like uh, sources that point to the fact that Christians were thought to be like uh, perverts, like kind of freaks. Like they always meet behind closed doors and who knows what goes on in there. And I hear there's women and men in there together. And so all these rumors were spread that at Christian meetings they had like orgies going on in Rome. I guess that's one way to grow a church. I don't think that's what was going on, but like that's what, that's what, that's, that, that was the rumor, right? Um, there was another rumor that said that Christians were um, uh, cannibals. Because every time they get together, they break this poor guy in half and then they drink his blood and serious like people thought Christians were weird freaky like cannibal people the Romans thought Christians were atheists like an atheist sect 
that were rebelling against the Roman gods, and so they were labeled as atheists, the early Christians. This one guy, Tacitus, who's a Roman historian in the first century, he was not a Christian, and he really didn't like Christians, but he wrote about the emperor Nero's treatment of Christians. Nero was a crazy person who happened to be in control of the world's uh, biggest empire, which always turns out well. And he, uh, you know, they think he started the fires that took out half of Rome. But in order to uh, get the blame off of himself, Nero blamed the Christians, who people in Rome already hated anyway. And so uh, Tacitus, who again has no allegiance to the church, talks about what Nero and others did to the Christians in Rome. And they dressed them in fresh animal hides. And then they set them free in like a coliseum or, or like an arena and set wild dogs free to chase them and then to consume them for sport. And people would watch and they would cheer. And then sometimes they would take Christians who refused to repent of their Christian faith and they would hang them on poles and, and, uh, and burn them. And, uh, and Tacitus says that sometimes we use them for lamps at night, these Christians. Who burned. I scoff a little bit when I hear about Christian persecution in our country today. Things like this are happening in other countries, but uh, yeah, this is the reality that Paul faced, the reality that the early Christians faced. And when Paul says, I am not ashamed, he says it because most Romans would say, well, you should be. Most Jews would have said the same thing, frankly, for a different reason. For the Jews, the problem wasn't so much the persecution of Christians. Jews knew all about what it meant to be persecuted. For the Jews, the problem with Jesus came down to the cross. Paul's Jewish contemporaries had a problem with the cross. Because while for us, the cross has become a symbol of peace and hope in the first century world, it was not that. The cross in the first century world was disgusting. It was repulsive. It was a symbol of oppression. It was a symbol of wrongdoing. It was where criminals died. Jesus wasn't special because he hanged on a cross. Jesus stood in a long line of others that hanged on crosses before him, and someone else hanged on his cross after they were done with him. It happened all the time. He was one of a million people that were crucified by the Romans. It happened every day. One day they crucified a 1,000 people in Jerusalem in the same day. There's documentation of this. But the cross itself, you know, first century Jews weren't exactly wearing it as a pendant around their neck. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like they weren't putting it on, on their cars, on bumper stickers and stuff. It wasn't sweet. It wasn't sentimental. It was ugly. So suddenly you have this movement whose center is this man who died a criminal's death on a cross. And the Jewish leaders, they wanted it that way. You ever wondered why when they arrest Jesus... Have you ever wondered why, first of all, they don't just stone him like the Jewish leaders had done to all the other heretics that came before Jesus? Why not just stone him and be rid of him? It's because Jesus' movement had grown too powerful. It had grown too big. His miracles were too legit. His followers were too like, enthusiastic. They couldn't just get rid of him. The Jewish leaders had to discredit him. And so they want to get the Romans involved so that they can get Jesus on a cross. Ever wondered why when 
the Roman authorities have Jesus on trial and they say to the people, what should I do with him? How should I punish him? And the angry mob that had been riled up by the Jewish leaders, they all said, crucify him, crucify him. That didn't happen every day. It was a concerted effort to get Jesus hanging from a tree. And here is why. It's because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 21, 23, the Bible says anyone who hangs from a tree is under God's curse. And so it wasn't enough for the Jewish leaders just to be rid of Jesus. They needed to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the other Jewish people. They needed, they, they needed to show them he's not who he says he is. And so they charge him with sedition and insurrection. They say to the Romans, this guy said he's a king. This is y'all's problem now. And when the Romans say, what do they do with him? And they said, let's put him on a cross. Let's put him on a tree. And then when he hanged on the tree, the Jewish leaders could stand back and point to Deuteronomy 21, 23 and look at the people and go, see? See? We tried to tell you. This man is cursed. God would never let the Messiah hang from a tree. This is why Paul says, I am not Ashamed, because most people who knew him look at him and thought, you should be. I want you to notice one very simple fact. Very quickly, I'm going to cover this and move on, especially you young people. Okay, I want you to notice this. Paul was discredited by everyone who knew him. Everyone who knew Paul in his early life, in his young life, and what he became as a Christian, everyone who knew him said, what a shame. I want you to notice today, very simple, very simple thing you probably already noticed. I want you to notice that we are not here today talking about those people who looked down on Paul. We are not here today celebrating them. We are not here today honoring them. We are not here today remembering them because all those people who looked down at Paul and said, what a shame you've become, what you've become. Nobody knows who they were. Nobody remembers them. Nobody remembers their lives because they traveled the path of least resistance. And when you travel the path of least resistance, no one remembers your name. Instead, we're here talking about Paul, who lived with his parents when he was 30. We're here talking about Paul, who was in prison for six and a half years. We're here talking about Paul, who everyone said should be ashamed. The guy they look down on is the guy we look up to. So, young people, this is what I want to tell you real quick. Uh, pay attention. Some of you are going off to college. Some of you are starting high school this year. Very important stuff. I want you to see before you that the path they've set before you, the path culture sets before you, is a trap. It is a lie. The path of least resistance, many of you think you should be on, will get you nowhere and will lead you to a meaningless life. I want you to, to see today that the path that many of us are led to believe that we should be on, that path of being good little boys and girls who don't get into trouble, that path of going to college and making some connections, that path of getting a job and making some money, that path of getting a spouse and making some children, the path of getting a house and making some more money, that path of maybe giving a little bit of it away to charity, but living mostly for yourself and buying more stuff. That path of living for yourself is an empty path. It is, a, it is maybe the devil's greatest trick that he plays on young people. Pay attention to the life you are 
living. Because Jesus never calls anyone to just be good. Jesus never calls anyone to just be charitable. Jesus didn't call Paul to be a charitable person. Jesus calls Paul to be a disciple. And there's a very big difference between being a good person who's charitable and being a disciple. Because you can be charitable and believe anything. You can be charitable and be selfish. Charity can mean living basically for yourself and giving away whatever might be left. Disciple, being a disciple means giving everything away, offering everything to Jesus, and living by faith. Jesus is not calling you to live a nice life. He's not calling you to be charitable. He's calling us to be disciples. I want to spend the rest of our time today digging through the difference between the two. I can sum it up pretty simply. The difference between being someone who's charitable and being someone who's a disciple is the cross, I believe. In Matthew 16, verse 14, Jesus says, anybody who wants to follow me must take up their cross first and then come follow me. You want to be my disciple? You want to be with me? Bring your cross along with you. And Peter and the other disciples, remember what they think when they hear the word cross. They think repulsive. They think ugly. They think pain. Peter and the disciples are like, you know what, Jesus? I, I don't think that's where we want to go. I think we want to do something else. Can we do something else? Can you just be like a really cool king and we can be like your second in command? I'll be the vice king and, you know, whatever. Like, you're making up their own plans. And Jesus says to Peter in that moment, get behind me, Satan. Pick up your cross and let's go. Take up your cross and follow me. Martin Luther was a 16th century uh, theologian. Great. Christian leader, church reformer. He said that there are basically two lenses through which people view God. There are two theologies, he said. There's a theology of glory and there's a theology of the cross. And the theology of glory is the one most people look through in search of God. We look for a God who's powerful. We look for a God of dominion. We look for a God of control and authority. The theology of the cross, though, is about God's self-revelation in suffering. God's self-revelation in pain and weakness. So the question is, how are we choosing to look at God? The truth is that we have a hard time with this. We would rather Jesus be a God of dominion and authority, a God of power who takes control and just takes us along for the ride. We all want a God who makes life easier, not harder, who makes us richer, not poorer, who makes us more successful and not less. But that doesn't jive with what we see in Paul's life. Paul goes to the guillotine for the sake of the gospel. I know Christians who won't even go to church for the sake of the gospel today. It's too hot. I'll sweat a little. <laughs> the parking's bad right now. I'm not construction. And when you preach too long, I, I can't get into brunch at Tiny's. So y'all know what I'm saying. Praying that your souls are convicted today. <laughs> We want a God of glory, a God of power, a God of dominion, and God is all those things. But in Jesus, God chooses to reveal himself to us on the cross. 
in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. You know, we hear Johnny and Brianna, like last week, they stood up here and they sang beautifully, I surrender all. And we sang it like we meant it. I surrender all. You know, like, and, and every study shows that Christians, on average, give away less than 2% of our income. Not just to the church. Give away at all. Less than 2%. Maybe we should stop singing I surrender all. If we're going to be honest in the house of God, maybe we should sing, like, some to Jesus, I surrender some. To him I freely give. I surrender 1.8%. If we're honest, because we haven't yet discerned the difference between charity and discipleship. For many Christians, church is about charity. For Jesus and for Paul, church is about the cross. Church is about discipleship. Charity can be easy. Discipleship is always hard. And that's the thing about the cross is that it makes life hard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, we preach Christ crucified, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified, and this is, it's difficult for people to fathom and to swallow because that phrase, Christ crucified, we don't see how it makes no sense, but it would have made no sense at all in the first century. Christ is a word that means Messiah or Savior. Crucified is a word that means Cursed or damned. Paul is saying, I preach about a Savior who is cursed. I preach about a damned Messiah, and I am not ashamed. And his detractors said, well, you should be. Paul preaches about a God who suffers. A while back, I was at a restaurant one afternoon, Thursday afternoon. It's like 2 o'clock. I'm at a restaurant. March Madness is happening. Thus, the restaurant at Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. <laughs> and I'm supposed to be on the clock, so I have my laptop with me and my Bible to pretend like, to tell Tom Pace that I'm working, but I really am not working, and watch basketball. And I see this guy walking by outside on the street, and he's carrying a cross, big cross. And I think to myself, my first thought was, wow, good for him. Good for him. You know, I, he is all in for the gospel. I, I would join him, but I don't think God wants me to waste these chicken wings. And, and it's Duke that's playing. So Duke is Methodist school, and so I've got to support him. And so, you know, but good for him. And then I took a closer look at him and at his cross. And I saw on the foot of the cross, he had crafted some wheels on his cross. He outfooted his cross with wheels. This isn't the guy I saw, but I found another picture. You see the wheels on the cross? And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's kind of defeats the purpose. Like Jesus didn't say, roll your cross. He said, carry it. I'm like, carry your cross, man. You know, 
But then the more I thought about it, the more profound of a symbol that that was for me, I thought, wow, that is really profound. I think most of us, like myself included, like if, if that's an option, I'll take some wheels on my cross, like throw four of those things on there, you know, like give me some leather seats and a V6 and I'm good. Like we'll just go, you know, like let's roll with Jesus. But that's really not how it works. As much as we try to get people in the seats by telling them that Christianity is easy, by telling them that Jesus is like a self-help guru who's going to make their life easier and better and richer, as much as we try that, it doesn't make any disciples. In fact, it confuses people because they come and they say, okay, I'm in, take care of me, Jesus, and then their lives fall apart again and they wonder what they've done to deserve this from God. Some of you have been there. Jesus never promises you an easier life. Jesus never promises you that when you come to him, you won't feel pain, you won't suffer. In fact, he promises you that you will across, man. That's what it means. There was a man in my church several years ago whose name was Ken Dahl. Ken Dahl. Let that sink in. Ken Dahl. He was in his 70s, and he hated me, hated me. I was 23. I was a student preacher in the church that he'd been in all of his life, and after every sermon that I preached, he would walk up to the front, and he would stand up, and he would tell the whole congregation why everything I just said was wrong <laughs> during church. It made the benediction really awkward after that, but uh, every week. But once in a while, he would invite me to go flying with him. He was a pilot, and he had this rickety old twin-engine plane with two seats in it. But I declined every time because I was pretty sure he wanted me dead. And I thought, what better way? <laughs> you know? But he insisted, and I said yes. And one day, I went to his, the hangar where he kept his plane. We went flying. And then after that, we went to Denny's for breakfast. We kind of had bonded over this, and after that we went to, to Denny's, which is the, uh, the second most dangerous thing you can do with someone uh, you, who hates you, have breakfast at Denny's. Uh, and we were there, uh, we were eating, and he dove right in, and he minced no words. He said how much he hated the stuff I had to say from the pulpit, and he said there was this one sermon in particular that he really hated, this sermon where I talked about how suffering is part of salvation. This one part where I talked about how following Jesus is supposed to hurt a little. If it doesn't hurt a little, you're not doing it right. And he was really mad at me for saying that. He said, Eric, I've never suffered a day in my life. Are you saying my soul's in danger? Are you saying I'm not saved because I haven't suffered? He said, I've worked hard. I've provided for myself. I've always had more than enough. I've never depended on anyone. I've never suffered a day in my life. And what are you saying about my soul? And it was at that point that tears started coming out of this 70-year-old, six-foot-seven man's eyes at Denny's. <laughs> tears flooding down into his Grand Slam platter. And I realized that there was something serious going on here. He wasn't just being a pest to me. He was wondering. He was worried about the state of his soul. He said, I've never suffered. I don't know what that means. And I said, the first thing I thought about saying, I didn't say this, I promise. But the first thought in my head was, your name is Ken Dahl. How can you tell me you've never suffered? Like, <laughs> middle school. 
must have been murder for Kindle. I didn't say that. Instead, I said, I said, what about the time your wife had cancer? And he said, I was scared, but I wouldn't say I suffered. And then I said, well, what about 9-11? Or every time you drive in from your suburban house into the neighborhood where our church sits, surrounded by poverty and prostitution, I said, no, it's not my problem. And then I said, you know, um, what, what about when you're, kids go through hard times, he says, you know, they'll figure it out. I said, well, what about every time that Sarah McLaughlin commercial comes on with the dogs and the song and the adoption? Like, do you feel anything? Is there anything going on? And there, he said, you know, Eric, all the things you're describing, they're beyond my control. I can't worry myself with them. They're not my problem. Just because other people suffer doesn't mean God wants me to suffer too. And at that moment, a switch went off in his head. He hurt himself, and I heard him too. And we both knew he was dead wrong. We both had the words of amazing grace playing in our ears. He had just told me it's his favorite song. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it occurred to us in that moment, that silent moment where he's crying into his pancakes, he occurred to us that Jesus came to alleviate our suffering. Jesus suffered because the world was suffering. For God so loved the world that Jesus came and mended us and healed us. We knew that being a disciple meant taking other people's burdens on your backs. If you want to know what it looks like to be a disciple, look no further than those people who stood up a little earlier in the service, those teachers who are about to start a new school year. No one sacrifices like good teachers do. No one takes on the burdens and pains of other people who usually don't deserve it. <laughs> Amen, teachers. Uh, quite like good teachers do. But it comes at a cost. It comes with a price. That price is usually at Target or Hobby Lobby. Um, but it comes at a, at a cost. Teachers who care lie awake at night obsessing over that child in their class they know has a hard life at home. Teachers obsess over pouring themselves into the lives of their students. And they go all in. And it hurts a little. Ask them after this. They'll tell you. It doesn't come without sacrifice, but it hurts a little. But they will also tell you, if they're called to teach, that there's nothing more important to them than answering that call. That's what discipleship looks like. Some of you relate to those teachers. You're already answering your call. You know what it means to answer a call and find fulfillment in that, even when it hurts a little. But others of you relate to Ken. Others of you know what it's like to sit there and think, I've never really suffered a day in my life. Some of you have never felt any scarcity in your life. Some of you have always had more than enough. You've kind of chalked it up to being lucky. You've kind of chalked it up to being blessed or whatever. I want to tell you that it's possible you've just made a choice. Because comfort isn't a circumstance you're given. Comfort is a choice you make. That, that kind of... Uh, comfort that has us sit back, that kind of complacency. It's a choice. And that kind of comfort is not conducive with a cross. 
But here's what happens. Here's why I gave you that warning earlier, young people. When you choose comfort for too long, one day, years from now, you'll find yourself crying over your pancakes with some 23-year-old you don't even like very much, talking about how the time passed you by, and you haven't done anything significant with your life. And you know there's something that's been missing. And you know there's a, a hole in your heart. There's something you've missed out on all these years. Don't let yourself get to that point. Go all in on something now. Stop treating your faith like it's charity work. Become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is calling you into a deeper walk where you can with all your heart sing on a Sunday morning, I surrender all because it's all yours. Jesus, everything that I have belongs to you. And so I'm just going to ask you three questions and I want you just reflect and think on them as we get ready for communion. What is it that you are ready today to let go of some control, some comfort that you're ready today to let go of for the sake of spreading the gospel in the world and answering God's call? How is it today that you will sacrifice so that others will know Jesus? What comforts and what conveniences will you let go of to take up your cross. Teachers will tell you, I will tell you, there's nothing that matters more than saying yes to Jesus' invitation to become his disciple. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love and for your invitation. Even though we have failed you, even though we have fallen short time after time, you invite us still to commune with one another and with you. You invite us to follow you, even if it hurts a little. We thank you, Jesus, for in you we find our redemption. We find our meaning. Our life has purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.